Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainee Members Committee. My name is Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I am on the Trainee Members Committee and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Davidson who is a consultant neurologist working in Edinburgh. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome, thank you for having me. On our podcast today we will be talking about peripheral neuropathy which I think for anyone who is scared of neurology, which is most medical SHOs and registrars, <laughs> can seem like a very overwhelming topic that you try and read before you prepare for MRCP. Hopefully, Dr. Davidson, you'll make this a lot less scary for all of us. But I think there's no other question to start with than how should we approach a patient with peripheral neuropathy? It's a great opening question. The one thing I'd like to say is that I'm very much a general jobbing neurologist. I'm not a neuropathy expert, but I see a lot of patients and I've seen a lot of neuropathy. Another thing to mention is that this is a huge topic. So I think trying to keep it as streamlined and not too complicated would be helpful. I think the best approach to neuropathy, given that it's such a big topic, is just to start with a few of the basics. I'm a big fan of keeping things basic and compartmentalizing things and not overcomplicating them. So I think the best thing to begin with is just to understand a little bit about the basic anatomy of the peripheral nervous system. And I'm sorry if I'm patronizing anyone by talking a little bit about this, because I do know you will have a lot of knowledge about the nervous system. But if we think about the peripheral nervous system, it's really made up of not that many building blocks. So you've got your spinal nerve roots, which come out from the spinal cord. You've got two plexi, so you've got your brachial plexus at the level of the neck, and then you've got your lumbar plexus. You've got your nerves that sit in your arms and legs. We've got the autonomic nervous system, so the nerves that control our organs. We've got muscles, and we've got neuromuscular junction. And that, all those building blocks are your peripheral nervous system. When we are thinking about the peripheral nervous system, it's always lower motor neuron. So we're looking for a reduced or normal tone, absent or reduced reflexes, Sensory, motor, or sensory motor change, muscle wasting, weakness. The key thing, though, is that there are no upper motor neuron signs whatsoever. And if we think about nerves themselves, all I would expect a non-neurologist to know is you've got your axon, which is the cable, and you've got your myelin, which is your insulation. And there's certain neuropathies that will attack bits of the nerve or all of the nerve. And knowing those building blocks, knowing the clinical signs in lower motion neuron, and knowing a little bit about the overall basic anatomy of a nerve, that's what I would really expect anyone to know. 
And I think that's really important. It can feel very overwhelming because there is so much to learn and Mm -hmm. it can get quite complicated. So just being told that actually what you're required to know at your level is this, this and this, and this is the foundation that you need to go forward, I think is very Mm -hmm. helpful. As I said, I really just think keeping things simple is important because then it helps people not to get afraid of neurology and like you alluded to at the beginning, then good old neurophobia, but just having these basics in your mind that will stand you a good stead when you're met with a patient with a personal neuropathy, particularly if they're presenting for the first time. Another thing that can be helpful just to keep in the back of your head is patterns of peripheral neuropathy. You know, is it something that affects just one nerve, like a mononeuropathy, like carpal tunnel or a radial nerve palsy? Is it something that affects lots of different nerves? Is it symmetrical? Is it a radiculopathy? And by that I mean, is it a pinched nerve root in the neck when people get that horrible pain going down the arm with their sciatica? And the other clues when you're approaching a patient with neuropathy is the time course. So have you got somebody that's presented very quickly? I would say acutely, that would usually be under four weeks. Is it somebody that's presented subacutely, so four to eight weeks, or is it chronic and their neuropathy has evolved well over eight weeks or even longer? And these are kind of little helpful things to just keep in the back of your mind. And the other thing that we often think about is what kind of neuropathy is it? Is it something that's only affecting the sensory nerves, only affecting power and the motor? Is it both? Has it got pronounced autonomic involvement, ladder, bowel, temperature, palpitations, that kind of thing? And the other thing, when we talk about neuropathy, we talk about small fibre neuropathies and large fibre neuropathies. So your small fibres are your teeny, teeny, tiny little nerves that sit in our hands and feet. And one of their main jobs or predominant jobs is sensation. And then you've got your big nerves that kind of control your muscles and your power and that kind of thing. And so basically, overall, this is me finishing up with anatomy now, the role of the peripheral nervous system is to communicate neural information between your central nervous system, so that's your brain and your spinal cord, and your peripheral sensory or effector structures, so that's your muscles, your sweat glands, your blood vessels, your skin, and your bladder and bowel. All parts of the nervous system talk to each other. And that's just basic, that's basic anatomy. If we talk about a general approach, because I think this is the main part of answering your question, neurologists are obsessed with histories. We are obsessed with the history. We take it over and over again, sometimes in the same patient. But if you're taking a history from a patient with a peripheral neuropathy, there's certain things you want to try and get out of that history. So you want to know if there's any sensory symptoms, any tingling, any numbness. Is there weakness? Are there fasciculations? Is there any muscle wasting? And are there any autonomic symptoms? Is there any impotence, diarrhea, bladder, reduced sweating? And again, this is another really important question. Are there any other systemic symptoms that would make you think that maybe this neuropathy is part of a bigger picture or a kind of multi-system picture? And in terms of the sensory symptoms, they can be really odd and patients will describe them in quite unusual ways. So you're looking for pain, pins and needles, allodynia. All that word means is, you know, if I touched somebody with my finger, you wouldn't expect that to be painful, but they would find it super painful. Or are they numb? That's another thing. A lot of patients use certain phrases that I've come across and I've been seeing patients to describe their sensory symptoms. So, for example, some people talk about walking on cotton wool. Some people talk about walking on shards of glass or having elastic bands pinged off their hands and feet. Some people feel that their socks are crumpled in their shoes when they're not, or they can feel like a vice-like gripping pain around their feet or their hands. The sensory symptoms are very unusual, but patients are really good at describing how they make them feel. 
The other thing when you're talking about the history is the tempo of onset. We touched on that before. Is it acute, less than four weeks, subacute, four to eight weeks, or is it chronic? Has it progressed? Has it got worse very quickly or very gradually? Are there any other associated symptoms? And how long did it take to hit the worst point of the symptoms? Does it come and go? Is it constant? Is there any weakness along with it? Are the symptoms symmetrical? Do they affect both hands and both legs equally? Is it just the legs? Is it just the hands? Is it just one leg? All these questions are quite helpful. And then the other thing I always ask about is cranial nerves. They are part of the peripheral nervous system as well. And there's some types of neuropathy that really do have a predilection for cranial nerves, particularly multi-system conditions that involve a neuropathy like Sjogren's or sarcoid or Lyme or HIV. And again, when we talk about other associated symptoms, one of the things I always ask about is asthma. Is there any late onset asthma to suggest maybe there's a vasculitis going on? Are there any systemic symptoms to suggest maybe this is a malignancy and things like that? So you can see already the history is really crucial because you can get so much information that could really set you down a certain path. How important is family history and social history in these patients? Really important. That's a really good question. Really important. In terms of family history, I also ask about their early development. So if I'm faced with a 50-year-old patient presenting with neuropathy, I always ask, did you meet all your milestones? Did you walk at the right time, talk at the right time? Did anyone say that you ran in an awkward way when you were at PE or anything like that? I always ask about toxins, you know, farmers, kind of phosphate type things. I ask about drugs, nitrous oxide, which we'll come to as a huge thing at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to that later. Sexual history, travel history, always really important. Their medication history, we know that certain medications can be very toxic to nerves. And again, the systemic symptoms as well. So weight loss, look at their meals, joints, cardiac, eye symptoms, anything else associated with it. But family and social history is really, really important because there are a proportion of peripheral neuropathies that are inherited. And sometimes they can have quite late presentations. And even within a family with an inherited neuropathy, there can be quite striking variability in the severity as well. So always asking about family history is super important. Yeah, that's a really good question. So once you have the history, what happens after that? Yeah, so I would then go on to the examination. So you're armed with your history that may have given you some clues that might direct your examination, but overall a really good general neurology examination is helpful. But never forget the inspection. I know a lot of other specialties, inspection is very important and it's just as important in neuropathies. So you're looking at joints, you want to look at their joints. Is there any muscle wasting, fasciculations? Is there any skin rashes or changes? Is there any ulceration of the feet? Is there anything obvious that would suggest there's something multi-system going on, like is your patient cachectic? The other thing is tremor is not uncommon in neuropathies. Quite often patients with neuropathies have a tremor. And again, if you're dealing with a patient in an outpatient setting, they always say the examination starts in the waiting area. So watch how your patient walks towards you from the waiting area to the clinic room. And you know, you're looking for things like, do they have a high stepping gait that would suggest they've got a foot drop? Do they have what we refer to as an antalgic gait? Does their gait look very painful when they're walking? Are they ataxic? Do they have walking aids? How well do they look? Do they look well? Do they look unwell? And things like can they stand on their heels and toes is quite helpful as well. And again, with the examination you're looking for, your lower motion urine signs, you're not looking for brisk reflexes, you're not looking for increased tone, you're looking for things like reduced or normal tone, absent or reduced reflexes. That's quite a key finding in neuropathy. Is it a pure sensory neuropathy? Is the power all normal but the sensation's impaired? 
Or is that pure motor neuropathy with the sensations? Absolutely fine. But it's just that the power is gone. But most neuropathies, I have to say, are mixed. Most neuropathies involve sensory and motor nerve fibers. If there's any weakness present, we look for the pattern of the weakness. Is it more distally at the feet or proximally at the thighs? When we test sensation, we actually, there's many facets to sensation. So you want to know your vibration, your proprioception, temperature sense. Is there any pain? And is it dermatomal? Does it follow a dermatomal pattern or is it a glove and stocking pattern? That's very helpful to know as well. That's kind of a broad approach that I would use to anyone with neuropathy. A bit of basic anatomy, a really detailed history, and sometimes it's helpful to speak to a family member as well. And then a good detailed examination, but don't forget the systemic examination too. Once you've done all of that, if it is peripheral neuropathy, a diagnosis that can be made purely on history and examination, or do all these patients need to go on for further tests? Another really, really good question. I would say you can make the diagnosis clinically with your history and examination, but then when you're trying to find out what's causing the neuropathy, that's where the tests come in. Because ultimately you're trying to decide, can you treat this? Is it reversible? Or if it's not reversible, can you halt it? Or is it that this is something we just cannot help at all? And that's where the tests come in. I think probably the easiest thing is if I just broadly divide neuropathies into inherited and acquired, because acquired, I think probably would be helpful to focus on for the purpose of this talk. So I think that's the kind of thing that's going to come through a hospital door. But inherited neuropathies, I'm sure everyone's heard of charcot tooth or hereditary sensory motor neuropathy. And that's one of the common ones, and it can be any inheritance. It doesn't always have to be all soul dominant. There are so many Charcot-Marie Tooth type neuropathies, and they can be exonals that can affect only the axon, or they can be demyelinating, in which case they affect the myelin. But quite often, it's quite a distal neuropathy, so kind of hands and feet, absent reflexes, they can have bony and joint deformities, that kind of pes callus, and quite often there is a family history. It's progressive, it's not curable. And another one that's quite interesting is your hereditary liability to pressure palsies or HNPP. Basically, all that happens there is people keep accumulating neuropathies that just affect one nerve. So maybe they'll one year have a radial nerve palsy that gets better, and then they'll maybe have a foot drop, and then they'll maybe have a carpal tunnel syndrome. And that's an autosomal dominant genetic condition. But I think for the purposes of this, your acquired neuropathies, that's the stuff I think you guys are going to see quite a lot. And there's quite a lot, actually. If we think of Guillain-Barre syndrome, there's vasculitis, there's diabetes, pretty big. We spoke about toxins, metabolic, alcohol, nutritional neuropathies. I've definitely come across those and I can maybe talk to you about some of them. Compressive neuropathies, people who've crossed their legs for too long and walk out with a foot drop. And then we've got other things like malignancies and perineoplastic causes. And sometimes in those, the neuropathy is the first presenting symptom. So it's always good to have a little bit of knowledge about that. But if we're thinking about tests, and we do do tests, your history and examination is your strongest tool, but we need tests to try and own down on what the underlying cause is. So common bloods we do would be things like your blood count, your ESR, vitamin B12 and folic acid levels, glucose. And I often do an HbA1c as well to get a rough idea what's been happening to glucose over recent months. We do things like your kidney function, liver, thyroid function, and protein electrophoresis is quite important. And I'll, I'll come back to that. Chest x-ray. And of course, nerve conduction studies. The one thing I would say about nerve conduction studies is that they are good at picking up large nerves. 
they are not very good at picking up responses from the teeny tiny small nerves that we have a dense concentration of in our hands and feet. So if somebody comes in with what looks like above and stop neuropathy, but your nerve studies are normal, you've still got somebody with a peripheral neuropathy. It just means it's only really affecting the small nerve fibers. And they're really, really vulnerable, those small nerves, to many, many things. But from the nerve studies, you're really trying to figure out, is there a neuropathy there affecting the large fibers? And if there is, is it affecting the axon or is it affecting the myelin? Because again, that can give you a clue as to what kind of neuropathy you're dealing with. And again, that can help dictate, is it treatable or do you need to perform any further investigations? They're the kind of standard kind of preliminary tests you would do at the beginning. And would it be helpful if I spoke through a few of the acquired neuropathies, some of the commoner ones? Yes, yes, please. So the big one, top of the list, it has to be one of the inflammatory neuropathies. So that's Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I'm sure everyone's come across this condition. It's not that uncommon. It's one of these neuropathies that is inflammatory. It is autoimmune. It is your immune system attacking the myelin. It's part of the nerve, but you can get axonal variants as well. And they tend to be a lot more aggressive with not quite as good functional outcome. So they're acute, they hit their worst point within four weeks and the female to male predominance is equal. Another name that you often hear people calling Guillain-Barre is acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, but just say Guillain-Barre, everyone understands it. And I think it's always important that specialties talk the same language, otherwise people get quite confused. It can affect any age and it can be associated with infection. So HIV, Combylobacter, EBV, CMV, Haemophilus influenzae, there's usually but not always some kind of infective trigger, not a cause, but a trigger to set the process off. And the common presentation is you get this rapidly ascending sensory motor neuropathy. So it starts at the hands and feet and just climbs up the limbs. It can be very painful and you can have a lot of autonomic involvements. So we're pretty obsessed about checking an ECG, checking blood pressures, making sure they don't have tachybradies or their blood pressure is going up and down. You can have quite a lot of cranial nerve involvement. So facial weakness, lower motion and facial weakness. And watch out for the reflexes. We would expect the reflexes to be absent. But sometimes if somebody presents quite early on, they can be present and appear normal. But if you check them 24, 40 hours later, they've gone completely. When I've anyone with Guillain-Barre, you know you can get very mild cases. But if they're bad enough to be in hospital then you need to let ITU know early that they're in the building because these patients can go off incredibly quickly. They can look absolutely fine one minute and then they look very unwell the next. So I always give ITU a little bit of a heads up and sometimes they come up and see them before they get unwell and have conversations with the patient. You always have to check the force vital capacity every couple of hours to they're in because again, that's going to be a marker that somebody's deteriorating. If you have any upper motor neuron signs on your patient, I would do a scan of their head and spine just to make sure you're not missing anything that's mimicking Guillain-Barre. And always look for the underlying driver, your infections, has there been diarrhea? We always check HIV, that kind of thing. And an ECG is very important as well, again, for the tachybradies. We do do spinal fluid because you're looking for a protein level to be high. Sometimes your white cells can be high as well. Usually it's acellular or they're less than 10, but 10% will have a white cell count between 10 and 50. That's okay, that gets a pass. But if your white cells are over 50, you've got to start looking for another diagnosis. 
Don't forget your DVT prophylaxis. And the good news is it's treatable. So we get intravenous immunoglobulin or we do things like plasma exchange. And physio and OT are hugely important in getting people mobile again, back on their feet. The treatment doesn't reverse the process. It halts the process. It halts the attack. And thereafter, we have to get people as functionally independent as we can. The exonal variants, again, very, like I said, are incredibly aggressive. I think the last case I had was tetraparetic within 24 hours and quite badly so. So they're very, very fast moving, those types of Guillain-Barre syndrome. You touched on this slightly, the differences between having Guillain-Barre to the point where, you know, you have to have hospital admission or you could stay home. I've only ever seen it in hospital because I assume they would be the people that were bad enough that needed to come into hospital and certainly they did need to be there. But with the patients that never make it to hospital, is it that their disease process is slower? Is it that it's not as severe? What kind of differentiates them? Yeah, I'm saying it's just not as severe. Some people maybe come in with quite an acute onset sensory type of neuropathy and they don't have any reflexes and it just sometimes crosses your mind is this a very mild Guillain-Barre syndrome you know they're still walking around and quite often if there's not much to find an examination apart from maybe sensory change and loss of reflexes I have a discussion with the patient I say that I may have a hunch that you might have this but it's far from clear and I may be allowed them to go home with a worsening statement but if I get any hint that they're evolving in any way, then I usually err on the side of caution and admit them. The thing about Guillain-Barre is patients can look deceptively okay, but then very quickly they can change. So I usually err on the side of caution, but there certainly have been patients that I have sent home and they've not evolved further and it has been a very mild case. I think the key thing is always having a chat with neurology because we'll get involved very early and very quickly and see patients very quickly. They're well enough to go home with this, does that mean that they don't require treatment and it would just be a case of letting this burn out physio and OT after? Correct. We only treat if we think they are evolving and they're going to become disabled. If they're not functionally disabled by their symptoms, we don't treat them every time. I would say in my experience, the Guillain-Barre's that have required treatment outweigh the ones that don't. It's quite unusual, A, for me not to admit and B, for me not to treat. But I've definitely come across patients that they have, for whatever reason, have just had a very mild disease course. But I would have a low threshold. If you're in a general medical setting, just call a neurologist and we'll see them probably the same day. I don't think there's anyone in a general medical specialty that would not call a neurologist for this. <laughs> I'm scared. Please come. <laughs> And then there's, I won't go on too much about this just for the interest of time, but there is a chronic version of Guillain-Barre called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or CIDP for short. And it's something that's very similar to Guillain-Barre, but it evolves a lot slower, eight weeks or more. The good news about this type is it doesn't really affect the cardiorespiratory system, unlike the acute version, but you can still get cranial nerve involvement and you have your absent or reduced reflexes and your sensory change, and it is progressive but your autonomic involvement is really uncommon. It can have different variants. It can only affect the lower limbs. Sometimes it's only sensory involvement. Sometimes it only affects one limb. So it can be a bit variable in presentation. These are the kind of patients that usually present to an outpatient neurology clinic. And again, we do very similar tests, blood, your spinal fluid, nerve studies, and the treatment's the same. It's like IVIG or plasma exchange, but I have had cases that don't really respond to that and you end up getting steroids. That works quite well. And again, physio and OT. That's just the kind of chronic version. 
Kind of moving on to other types of neuropathies that it would be important to know about would be paraproteins. When we do plasma electrophoresis, we're looking for extra proteins in the blood. And I think the commonest one we come across is EMGA. But if you're over 50, you've got about 1% chance of having a paraprotein. And if you're over 70, it's about 3%. And 30 to 70% of the paraprotein bands will have a peripheral neuropathy. But most are MGUS. We see that in the outpatient clinic quite a bit. But every so often with paraproteins, you have to worry about evolving myelomas or other type of blood or malignancy type presentations. And the kind of common malignant gamopathies are your lymphomas, your Wallenstroms, your CLL. And as I said earlier, sometimes your neuropathy is the first presentation of an underlying bloodborne cancer. They're often very painful. I don't really like it when people have painful neuropathies. It makes me want to look for something underlying it. And there's lots of different types about how these kind of cancers can get to the nerves. They can be infiltrative. You can have like an amyloid type picture or they can cause a vasculitic type picture. If you have somebody with a paraprotein with a painful neuropathy, I would definitely be on the phone to a neurologist or a hematologist. If somebody's over 50 and presents with neuropathy, I always check for paraprotein. That's the kind of take-home message about that. And I guess vasculitis is another one. I think everyone comes across vasculitis given it's such a multi-system condition. Sometimes it's a primary vasculitis, like terminology has changed these days, but your cherub strouds and your vagnars and your polyarthritis, or it can be a secondary vasculitis from something else. We talked about it just now, is it something that malignant kind of cause, rheumatoid infections, things like SLE. So vasculitis and neuropathy are quite common. And again, we do lots of blood tests. Your ANCA is a big one, but also things like HIV, hepatitis B and C, blood count, your kidney function, that kind of thing. Urine dip, always do nerve studies. It's not uncommon for us to do a nerve biopsy to try and see evidence of vasculitis in the nerve. And again, like with many types of vasculitis, steroids is the answer. And quite often that leads on to other treatments like mycophenolate mulfatil or cyclophosphamide or things like that. But again, vasculitis, I have to say, is sore. It's painful. People have painful neuropathies with vasculitis. And again, pain's quite a big thing. It always raises, pricks my ears up to cancer or vasculitis, especially if it's acute. And then having said that though, diabetes. Diabetes and neuropathy, I think everyone knows that association. But the one thing about nerves is, particularly the small nerves, is they're so vulnerable and you don't even have to have full diabetes for your nerves to be affected by high glucose. Even if you're in the pre-diabetes phase, your nerves are being affected then too. So that's always something to be mindful of. And after about 25 years of having diabetes, about half people have a neuropathy. I mean, it, it does happen. It, unfortunately, high sugar to nerves is just so toxic. The risk of getting neuropathy increases the longer you have the disease. If your diabetic control is very poor and men tend to get it a little bit worse than women. And it's usually your glove and stocking distribution of neuropathy. Quite often the feet are worse and that can be anything from numbness to tingling or it can be quite painful. It can be very uncomfortable. And of course, if people can't feel the ground when they're walking and they stand in something sharp, that's when they start getting horrible ulcerations, which can be very, very troublesome. And they can get charcoal joints and things like that, depending on how severe it is. And quite often it does gradually, gradually progress. 
just on the note of pain and neuropathy, there's certain treatments that can be very good for it. So your anti-epileptic medications are really good, your pregabalins, gabapentins, carbamazepines, and also your antidepressant group. So amitriptyline, nortriptyline, geloxetine, they're really good for these type of horrible neuropathy type symptoms. But again, I guess with diabetes, you can get lots of autonomic neuropathies as well. So nocturnal diarrhea, constipation, kind of cardiovascular autonomic involvement, postural hypertension, that kind of thing, impotence in men. So never forget the autonomic nerves. With diabetic neuropathy, my understanding is the higher the glucose level, the higher your risk is of developing it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, however many years you've had diabetes for is also a risk factor. If you develop neuropathy, then start improving your glucose control, is that you're just halting its progression? Will there be any other change? In type 1 diabetes in particular, excellent glucose control is of paramount importance to halt the neuropathy or prevent it from getting any worse over time. Type 2 diabetes, the other thing that is very important is things like exercise, cholesterol control, general lifestyle, in addition to good glucose control in terms of halting or preventing a neuropathy from getting any worse. You definitely can't reverse it. It's all about just controlling things so that it doesn't get so bad that you become very toxic and it affects your ability to mobilize. The other thing that diabetes makes you prone to are things like carpal tunnel. It makes you more prone to cranial nerve palsies, ulnar neuropathies, that kind of thing. Sometimes if people have very severe hyperglycemia, it can lead to a kind of very acute onset neuropathy sometimes if they have really, really high glucose that comes on quite quickly. And again, treating that high glucose is really important. Sometimes hypoglycemia, if people have recurrent and severe hypoglycemia, that can contribute to neuropathies as well. And usually that's quite painful. But the take-home message is always educating. And diabetes teams are amazing. Educating patients about their feet, about neuropathy, about glucose control, lifestyle. That's the mainstay of management. But I have seen, you know, if people have had really chronically, really controlled type 1 diabetes in particular, they can have really horrible, horrible disabling neuropathies that, you know, glucose is just so toxic to nerves and all nerves in our bodies. So yeah, that's kind of very important given how common diabetes is. Okay, great. So I think that gave us a very good overview of diabetic neuropathy. And you'd mentioned some other acquired neuropathies that we could possibly Mm -hmm. discuss. I think you mentioned nitrous oxide. And I know for me, we always thought a lot about the effects that alcohol can have on peripheral neuropathy. If you don't mind us discussing those as well. Absolutely. There's lots of kind of toxic and metabolic neuropathies. Alcohol's definitely right up there. And I have to say that, you know, if, if I could pick another thing apart from glucose, it's very toxic to nerves, it's alcohol. And one of the questions you had was how much alcohol is too much? We should all be adhering to the recommended guidance about how much alcohol to drink. But in terms of neuropathy, it's more the chronicity of heavy alcohol use that leads to the neuropathy, that chronic exposure to nerves of high levels of alcohol in your system that will ultimately lead to neuropathy. And usually it's a glove and stocking neuropathy with the legs being affected much more. And I mean, this can get really, really severe if people don't manage to reduce their alcohol intake to the point where people can become quite disabled with an alcohol-related neuropathy. And it's something I always educate patients about as well. If you hear in the history that somebody's drinking a bit too much alcohol for prolonged periods of time, 
And if somebody does present with a bad neuropathy, I mean, ultimately you want to try and get them to stop drinking 100%. And again, you can't reverse the damage. It's all about halting the progression. And nitrous oxide as well, I mean, this is something that's quite topical in neurology at the moment. There's a bit of a problem with the recreational use and it can very much damage your nervous system, sometimes irreversibly. Peripheral and it's kind of associated with not dissimilar to vitamin B12 deficiency when you get subacute combined degeneration of the cord and things like that. So that's something we're kind of looking out for at the minute and actively asking people about it rather than waiting for patients to volunteer it because it is a bit of a problem at the moment. But generally speaking, in terms of toxic insults to neuropathies, there's many different toxic insults. You know, a lot of the medications we prescribe our patients can be toxic to the nerves. I think chemotherapy is probably the most well-known one. And usually the severity of the neuropathy is dose-related if it's things we're prescribing. And never forget heavy metals as well, lead, mercury, that kind of thing. And yeah, I think this is where your history comes in very helpfully. You know, you have to take a detailed drug history, detailed social history, any recreational drug misuse. What do you do for a living? Are you exposed to various chemicals, things like that? And you know, there's an exhaustive list of drugs that can affect our nerves from amiodarone to TB drugs, metronidazole. Phenytoin is the one of the ones we use. We've spoken about alcohol. There's lots and lots and lots of drugs that we need to be mindful of. So it's usually one of the things I go to if somebody's got neuropathy is what drugs are you on or what drugs have been exposed to for a reasonably long period of time. It's always worth making sure that it's not something obvious sitting in front of you that's causing the problem. The other thing that we have to be quite mindful of is nutritional neuropathies. You know, people can have vitamin deficiencies for lots of reasons. If it's autoimmune causes, do they have a bowel or absorptive problem? Have they had any gastrectomy, for example, that could affect their ability to absorb nutrients, that kind of thing. And these can be very painful nutritional neuropathies. But if you do find one vitamin deficiency, there's probably more. So I always do a nutritional screen, which you can order as a battery of blood tests. That can be quite helpful. For example, if you're deficient of vitamin B1, that can lead to a neuropathy. If you've got excessive vitamin B6, that can lead to a neuropathy. So it's always worth thinking about nutrition. And of course, there's the obvious one, which is vitamin B12 deficiency. So we check that quite a lot in neuropathy. People can present quite late with neuropathy. People don't often know they're vitamin B12 deficient and could have been deficient or deplete for quite a long time. And their presenting features in neuropathy. So that's something to always think about. The other thing that can give you a very similar picture is vitamin E deficiency. So that's something always to think about too. Always bearing in mind nutrition as well. If somebody's cachectic and has been for a long time and they've got a horrible neuropathy, you want to do a good nutritional screen. And are nutritional neuropathies reversible or are they too irreversible like the others that we mentioned? Generally speaking, once the damage is done, it's done but you can improve, you can rehabilitate. I've seen quite severe neuropathies with vitamin B12 and I've seen a couple of very severe neuropathies with vitamin B12. Remember, vitamin B12 is also needed for normal eye function as well, so it can affect your vision too if you're deplete for long enough. But I think it's all about replacing what they're deficient in. Vitamin B12 can get better, if you've got nervous system involvement, we don't do a three-monthly replacement. We, we load them up with vitamin B12 and give it very regularly as per local protocols. 
until the neuropathy or other nervous involvement has improved completely or until it's stabilized and stopped improving. So theoretically, yeah, some people can make a full recovery, but not everyone will. We touched on vitamin B12 and very severe cases can be associated with subacute combined degeneration of the cord. Other kind of strange metabolic things that can give you neuropathy is perfidia. I mean, it's not the commonest thing around, but always good to have it at the back of your head. Uremic neuropathies, people with renal failure, dialysis, quite often develop neuropathies. I guess another big thing that I could see general medics, critical care people coming across is your critical illness, neuropathy or myopathy. People who've been in ITU for a long period of time, particularly if they've had a huge bout of sepsis, can come out with really horrible critical illness neuropathies. They can be quite disabling at times. That's always to be mindful of that. If you suddenly realize your patient with septic shock improves from that perspective, but then wakes up and finds that they can't really move their arms and legs all that well. Critical illness neuropathies are not uncommon. And is the treatment for those just physio once you've treated the underlying cause? Absolutely. Good rehabilitation. And again, not everyone will make a full recovery, but hopefully most people will. And with physio, because from what I can see, it's actually a, a massive part of treating these patients. Is this something that needs to happen on an inpatient basis? Or is this something that can happen with outpatient physio and then the patient just carries on doing their exercises at home? I would always get the physios involved ASAP. Physios are amazing. And if somebody is so weak that they cannot for example, mobilize themselves even in the bed, they're open to starting to get contractures with their hands and feet. So it's always good to have the physios constantly moving their limbs, working their limbs to try and prevent all of that. So I would advise getting them involved as soon as possible. And what they do is they're really good at guiding us. If we think about patients we see in neurology, they're really good at guiding us whether a patient can get home from the hospital with ongoing community physio or whether they do actually need to go to a neurorehabilitation unit and get more prolonged inpatient physio before going home, depending on how severe things are. So I always get them involved as occupational therapy, actually, as soon as possible. I think one of the other kind of common neuropathies we see, it's probably something we see more in the outpatient setting, is what we refer to as small fibre neuropathy. That's kind of your typical glove and stopping neuropathy, but it really only affects the teeny tiny nerves in our hands and feet. And we've got dense, dense concentrations of these nerves. So for our feet, what these nerves do is they tell our brain what we're walking on. Are we changing direction? Are we on an incline? Are we on cobbles? Are we on a wet surface? And for our fingers, they give us that fine dexterity, you know, buttons and zips and things like that. And they're quite small and they're vulnerable and they're vulnerable to deciding they're not going to work all that well. And usually about half of cases, we don't really know why that is. But the typical kind of presentation is somebody presents gradually over many, many years, just gradually noticing their feet are a bit numb or tingly and that kind of thing. And it's one of these conditions that over long periods of time, in years and years and years, it might get progressively worse. And we do all our bloods. You know, we check they don't have diabetes, alcohol, B12, but sometimes you just don't find your cause. And this is actually quite common in neurology. Quite often they have normal nerve conduction studies too. It's mainly a sensory kind of small fibre neuropathy. Quite often, just we don't know that, as we've discussed already, it can also be associated with other things like medications, alcohol, diabetes, cancers, multi-system disorders. But there can be idiopathic variants. They tend to be less aggressive, I would say. And then again, just finally, I wasn't joking when I said I could talk about neuropathy for a very long time. 
just your compressive neuropathies. So, for example, people who lean on their elbows too long might finally start to get tingling or numbness in the ulnar nerve distribution or can actually give themselves an ulnar neuropathy where they get weakness on that side. You're more predisposed to a compressive neuropathy if you have something, for example, like diabetes, if your nerves are already a bit vulnerable because of that, or alcohol would be another one. You've got things like your Bell's palsy as well. Facial palsies can be really difficult because Bell's palsy is a lower motion neuron palsy. So what you're looking for is the forehead involved. If the forehead is not involved, then that would suggest that it's an upper motor neuron problem. If it is involved, then it's lower motor neuron. It's probably something like a Bell's palsy. But facial weakness can be really hard to decide whether the foreheads are involved or not. Even neurologists find this difficult, depending on how severe the facial weakness is. So again, if you're not sure, call a neurologist because sometimes there is a need to do further investigations and make sure that there's no structural cause for the facial nerve not working, like a tumor or a meningioma or other multi-system conditions, Lyme disease, sarcoid, that kind of thing. So Bell's palsies um, or facial weakness always needs a little bit of thought. It's not always just a Bell's palsy, so it's just something to know about. Other than compressive neuropathies, so your other neuropathy we've mentioned, your radial nerve palsy. Some people call it the Saturday night palsy. If people have fallen asleep on their arm and not moved all night, they sometimes wake up the radial nerve palsy or people are using crutches, that kind of thing. Carpal tunnel is very common. And the ulnar nerve where you get the claw hand all very common. So if they, they're compressed long enough, they will stop working. But the good news is they usually get better on their own. And then the lower nerve, I think the common one from the lower limb is your foot drops, so the common perineal nerve palsy. And that nerve just sits on the outside, just on the latter part, just below the lateral part of the knee. So it's quite exposed to damage or football, rugby tacklers, rugby, that kind of thing. It can be easily compressed. And then another thing that's not that uncommon, but I'm sure we've all come across is neuralgia parasthetica, which is compression or irritation of the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh. And quite often patients come in just with numbness down the side of their thigh. That can be associated with sudden weight gain or weight loss. So, for example, people who stopped smoking and maybe gained a bit of weight, sometimes it can affect them. But yeah, I would say that's probably a general overview of peripheral neuropathy, which I hope has been helpful. If ever unsure, do feel free to call neurology. I'd like to think we're always very helpful. Time the phone and, and also offer to help see patients. That was a very thorough, yet concise run through of peripheral neuropathy, <laughs> which I think is very difficult to do. And for our listeners, we will have kind of a Paces podcast mini series mm-hmm. coming out. So I don't want this to be completely focused on that. But I do know that a lot of our listeners are at that stage where they are taking exams. And I think the neurology exam is overwhelming. And I very much liked what you said a bit earlier rather of neurophobia. I'm definitely going to start using that phrase. I think it can be quite challenging, especially in station five, where peripheral neuropathy can come up quite often to know what to prioritize to be able to show that this is something that's lower motor neuron within those you know, that very limited time that you have to do history and examination. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you had any top tips for Mm -hmm. how we should be approaching that station or even in clinical practice, actually, where you might be seeing a patient, you know, on the same day emergency care unit and you don't have all the equipment that you necessarily need. And just Mm -hmm. what we should be doing, what are the main things that we should be doing if we don't have either A, time or B, equipment to be able to narrow down that this is a peripheral neuropathy that does warrant further and more thorough 
examination and investigation? Yeah, good question. So I think if we go back to station five, there'll be something in the history that will give you a clue that peripheral neuropathy is what they're talking about. I suspect they would maybe mention numbness in their hands and feet. If you get that out of the history, probably asking them where precisely they've got their symptoms. Is it in a glove and stocking pattern? Because that would very quickly direct your examination. I think in terms of a brief examination, I think your best friend has got to be your tent and hammer. If you've got very severe neuropathy, you're going to lose all reflexes, but quite often it's the ankle jerks that are lost in a glove and stocking neuropathy. And I think the other thing to demonstrate an examination would be not only the findings that would suggest a lower motion urine picture, but also the absence of your upper motion urine signs that take you to the peripheral nervous system. Station five is you've got no time at all in that station, you know. There'll be something key in the history that points you towards examining the limbs, finding those supportive factors of neuropathy, maybe reduced or absent reflexes, a stocking distribution of numbness, downgoing plantar responses, normal tone or reduced tone. So that would provide kind of good evidence that it's a neuropathy in a station five setting. I think if you're busy in acute receiving or A&E, I think if I could pick one piece of equipment to have in your person, it'd be a tendon hammer because people either have absent reduced normal or brisk reflexes and that will tell you immediately is this kind of a lower motion urine or an upper motion urine problem and kind of sets you down a certain pathway. Obviously if someone's got widespread upper motion urine symptoms then you're going to look at the brain or the spinal cord. If they're not absent and you've got someone with numb feet, numb legs with no reflexes then that's going to pass you down the peripheral route and again the history will dictate exactly how quickly you need to act in terms of admission, not admission, investigations. Because if you think of the temple of onset again, acute neuropathies, they're progressive, they get worse and they get worse very quickly under four weeks. So that's kind of the benchmark I use. But the tendon hammer, you can test some sensation with your finger or even something else. And patients can still say, oh no, I feel that a lot less in my foot than I did at my knee. So it's always hard to assess neuropathies in an acute setting, I think. Yes, no, I completely agree. I think that's the end of my very many questions. So thank (laughs) you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and for making, as I've said multiple times, a very overwhelming topic feel very approachable and for giving us a very systematic way of approaching these patients so that hopefully when we do ring urology for help, we've all done a very good primary assessment to help the patient get on their way for their diagnosis and management. Thank you very much. And thank you for asking me to do the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you.